Kreuzer e Last Standee. Hello and welcome to The Last Standee, a board game podcast coming to you from five exciting countries across Europe. I'm joined here today by Alexis. Hi. Alessio. Hello, hello. Audrey. Hey. David. Hey. And I'm your host, Fen. Uh, hello. Uh, we're going to be talking about a range of different topics across the hobby, and today we're going to start with a bit of a catch-up, because uh, we've been on a break for the holiday period and the new year, so how's everyone doing? Um, I'm doing pretty okay. I spent my new years with my family, uh, thankfully, and I got to play some uh, some board game as well as uh, I received uh, Dice Forge, which I'll probably uh, talk about in one of our next episodes, and uh, overall just doing okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, David? Yeah, I'm doing fine so far. Like uh, we played um, on New Year's Eve, we played a bit of uh, Settler of Catan, which was like surprisingly fun this time because the walls were my favorite. <laughs> and hopefully next year will look a lot better than last year. Hopefully. Yep, yep. Uh, well, you know, we just have to wait and see. Alessio? Well, I actually got my Crokinole Pledge for the Crokinole game, which is actually a piece of furniture. And mm. it is a great, great game. I it is. I actually got addicted. I, I've got a copy of myself, but it's still stuck in the UK waiting to be shipped over. It's uh, super good. Yeah, it's very good. As dexterity, poolish type games go, fantastic. Logistic between the uh, the UK and Europe. I'm guessing that's going to become a, an important topic in the coming weeks. Yeah, for me, it shouldn't be quite so difficult. It's just a matter of paying to get the stuff transported. But uh, there's, I have to wait for the money to arrive in the UK, and that's got a whole other bunch of things waiting on it behind it. Uh, anyway, and um, uh, let's see. Let's touch with Audrey. How's your uh, Christmas break been? Yeah, it was great. We went uh, to visit the families and we took our cat with us and he adapted perfectly at my parents. So that was a great thing. I finally converted my parents and especially my dad to board games. Woo! I won! Because we took just two games with us. Five minute dungeon and we didn't play it. And Azul. I think that Azul blew everyone's mind, especially the dads. Both my boyfriend's dad and mine. That was great and now my parents are asking me board games to buy oh that is that's always nice yeah my dad before that he he only tried games of guessings and uh visuals like dixit and he didn't catch uh on them so it's completely uh, azul showed them a different type of games both to uh to both dads and especially my dad was really converted i think that having something that's more concrete that's more touchable in the game really helped him because he had uh, the tiles to manipulate and I think games which have components to manipulate can make it easier than abstract games. Yeah, I, I think I agree in that if you think about it, one of the games people talk about playing at Christmas, at least uh, in the UK, is Scrabble, which is tiles. And to go to Azul, you're just kind of like, well, this is a tile game, only you're playing with colours instead of letters, you know. Yeah, the first phase of the game is basically a drafting phase, but you're drafting just colors. I think it's a really good introduction to the 
mechanic of drafting. I think that at some point I could go back to my parents and have another game and say, okay, you see these mechanics? That's what he's called usually drafting. You have a pool of resource and you draw from them in turns. That's what a draft is. And many other games rely on the mechanic of drafting. I think that's a really good introduction to that. And because it's simple, you don't have many turns, everything is open on the table. So, yeah, you can chat while you're doing it. You can say, oh, okay, I'm doing this and I'm I'm drafting from this pile and I'm putting it on my board. And everyone can see it compared to games where the draft is uh, hidden. So you can very easily have a first game where you take people by the hand and show them what you do. And of course, you always have the, the hardest thing with Azul is explaining the points. I, I think that in both families, that's what was a bit harder to get the fact that the tile you put on your board counts both horizontally and vertically. But once they had it figured out, they were like, oh, okay, so I'm going to fill this uh, slot on my board because that's the one that scores me lots of points. Uh -huh. Uh, my experience with Azul is um, with uh, Stained Glass of Sintra, um, mm -hmm. which is a little bit different in that you have these laid out strips and you're looking to fill those in to match the colours. Um, I'm looking at the Azul board now because I've not had a chance to play the original Azul. And yeah, it's that's quite a different tile lay mechanic. Yeah, when when the people know you can turn the boards and there is a second um, side where you can put the colors however you want, as long as each color is seen just once in every column and once in every line. But uh, that's the other advantage of the game. You can be very progressive. Make one game just drafting and putting the tiles. Make one game drafting, putting the tiles and then counting points and etc. You can increase the level of depth of the game progressively. And I think that's really something that uh, is very convenient and which helped everyone have a good time. Having introductory drafting element is really nice since plenty of games use those. Yeah, I, I know that my uh, sister, she has uh, Seven Wonders, the normal version, not the dual one. And uh, she tried to have our family play it, and my dad didn't understand the draft at that point. But uh, Azul, maybe because it's not hidden, because you can see exactly what everyone does, made him understand the draft. And maybe I could go back to ne next time. When I go back, maybe I can ask my sister to bring Seven Wonders and say, okay, you see, this is... The, what we do in Azul is a draft, and this is another kind of draft. And I think that's a really good, yeah, introduction to it. You're right. Um, in Azul, is there a mechanic where if you get tiles, you can't place this score against you? Yes. There is. Oh, it's the same one. Yeah, because that's one of the mechanics I really liked in Stained Glass. Is if you take tiles and you can't place them all, you've broken those tiles, and you have to um, put them on a broken glass track, and it scores points against you at the end of the game which I thought was um, a nice little kind of mechanic of where you can leave things that people don't really want to take. Yeah, I, as we were all new to the game, we didn't really uh, focus on, oh, I'm going to take this because I like it and someone will end with these tiles that they don't want. We didn't really look at that too much. We were like, I'm going to take this because I want it. And if something uh, is left behind and someone takes it and has negative points, 
I don't care. <laughs> but we were not actively trying to give negative points to the other. I think that also helped because it creates a mood in the game, uh, especially for newer players, that's a bit nicer. But for people that want to play hard, you have as well uh, a lever to pull. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and another thing which is noteworthy is probably that the game ends with a one last turn when uh, someone completed their last line. First line. Yeah, so it is important to keep the point in check because uh, there is always someone who could end at the more convenient time. So you, you are actually pressed to, you are pushed to have always a winning, uh, winning points in your hand. You cannot just store for a future which couldn't come. I always like that in games when the, the player can decide when the game ends, which gives a, a small amount of, um, not bluff, but but at least some level of uh, inter-player. Um, should I end now or should I wait another turn? Uh, is that, that player going to end before me? Well, in the in, in Azul Classic, it's uh, yes and no on that, because technically the game ends when someone uh, finishes one line the first line but uh, it's very hard not to finish a line in five turns so in theory you could play six rounds but generally someone ends up the game at five rounds yeah exactly you have to be real quick because there's some there's always some someone putting pulling something nasty like ending the, the turn while you are still setting up your combo yeah, it generally is a good mechanic to have in games like this because it, it's uh, without it, without that form of player agency, people can sit there and go, oh, well, I'm just going to do this strategy at these beats and I know I've got this many turns to do this. And here, it's sort of if you see someone moving and lining up for something big, you can race your game and be like, well, I'm going to get a few less points, but you're going to get a lot less points, which keeps the game having depth for replays and getting experienced with it. It's nice to have that elasticity to the end. In game with uh, an engine building, which isn't like uh, like Azul, but uh, in uh, Race for the Galaxy, for example, I always think that it's kind of um, it's more interesting when there's a when the the end is defined by the player rather than a specific ending, uh, because it it forces player not to to play by the the game's tempo, but to um, to decide their own tempo between the player. It creates a more interesting meta, I think. Yeah, and in in Azul, uh, from what I heard, it's it's a game that's uh, really interesting and dynamic. It is. I'm glad that uh, your family enjoyed it, uh, Audrey. Yeah, uh, one nuance that my boyfriend had to bring is that so each player has their own board, and you rate no you you keep track of your points on your own board, and sometimes it can be a bit hard to look at other players' board to see oh how many points do you have now. And uh, after that, we bought the Azul Summer Pavilion, in which there is a common a board to track points. So you put it at the middle of the table, and everyone has their own tracker that they move on this board. And my boyfriend said that he thinks it's more convenient to see exactly who is leading, how much points you need to take back the lead, etc. And I think that's something that I agree on. I haven't uh, opened the box yet as I bought it just uh, just a week ago, but I am pretty sure I'm going to uh, do that very soon. And now my parents bought three other board games, uh, Quirkle, Skyjo and Quatl. And 
just as Azul, they're doing introductory games. So with Quirkle, I think they did just a first game to learn the rules and see how they place the tiles. And then uh, they're going, they said that they are going to do soon another game, but where they will count the points. And my dad is asking for more. Yeah. Thank you, Azul. Thank you. Somebody who has, hasn't played Azul yet. I've seen there are like different versions or like uh, there's like Summer Pavilion or something. Yeah. And the stained glasses. Uh, what, are, what are the difference and which, which one would you like uh, recommend for beginners or like more advanced players? Right. So I've, as I said, I've only played stained glass of Azul. And basically the way it goes is Azul's the simplest version of it. Um, stained glass adds a few extra wrinkles and difficulties. Um, Summer is one that I've not had a chance to play, but uh, apparently is uh, similar in complexity or a little bit more. So if you're used to board games, I would say Sintra is um, more than accessible enough. But uh, if you're playing with people who haven't played much, then just basic Azul is a great uh, I, yeah, I have a basic Azul, and I can say that it is actually a good entry point game. Everyone loves it, so that's the right amount of complexity. Stained Glass of Sintra, I think it has uh, changed scoring uh, differently from the basic Azul, yeah. so it's a good entry point too. Hmm. Yeah, it has yeah. the addition of a few extra mechanics like a glazier that sort of adds more thinking to it uh, and and a little bit more complexity without getting overly so. Um, and uh, I personally prefer the stained glass aesthetic over the tile laying one, mostly because uh, I really still want to eat the tiles in Azul. <laughs> I just played the regular Azul uh, since I bought uh, Summer Pavilion just recently. But... Uh... What I would say is that from the chats that I've had online, the Summer Pavilion has a reputation to be more tactical and that you can go into um, that you can go really deep if the other players around the table know about board games and are used to playing board games and etc. So yeah, for the introduction, uh, it really seems that the standard one is the best one. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if you if you got um, Azul. I don't know if you'd want both stained glass and summer. I think you'd probably pick one, uh, two out of those three at most, really. Yeah. It, uh, I think most people agree maybe Azul for the first one, uh, except for me. I prefer stained oh. glass any day. Another thing that is probably worth mentioning is that the the production value is actually spot on. The the components are really nice to look at and move around and touch. So yeah, that's a positive thing about the game. Well, and also, also as you you've just reminded me, it has at least stained glass does. I don't know about Azul. It has a good inlay, which really matters for me. I care so much about how good the inlay is, and the stained glass one holds everything well and it doesn't slide around. So that's like a big tick in my book. That's a whole point out of ten for me. It's the the inlay of Azul standard is basic, but yeah, it's working. I have yeah. those like those physical games where you have like the you actually can feel like the components and everything are always I think pretty good entry games. Um, some some months ago, I don't remember the name of the game, but basically you had like those small construction pieces, and then had to balance like work uh, like construction workers on that. That was a fantastic game, like small board game for past like more dexterity based, and that's like. Uh, 
really interesting for like beginners or like kids and everything if it has like a physical feel to it. Yeah. Oh, I looked it in BGG. Uh, I don't remember the name. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the advantage with the Azul tiles, it's that they're printed. They're, they're not stickers that you could uh, take off. So you really feel that your game is durable. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a recommend for the Azul family from us, I think, all, almost across the board. Um, you know, David hasn't had a chance to play it yet, but uh, I do hope you do. Oh, well, so, I found the, the name of the game, uh, Man at Work. Yes, yes. Yeah, so that's it. I think Azul gets a bit of a recommendation there. All right, well, now it's time to take a short break and uh, just a little bit of self-promotion here for us. Uh, the Last Standy now has a Patreon where you can come and support us if you want to. Uh, it is uh, located at um, patreon.com, www.patreon.com forward slash the last standy. Um, same as the title, so that's... Uh, Standy with two E's. Uh, should also be in the description for this episode. Um, there are two tiers. You can just give us a $1 a month support just to say, hi, thanks, we enjoy the podcast. Or you can have a $5, uh, five euros, sorry, euros. I'm so used to saying dollars. Dollars, um, dollars. Is it dollars? It's in euros on mine. Um, uh, anyway, uh, there's two two tiers. The second tier will have a few extra sort of bonus episodes and little bits of additional exclusive content and recording. Um, you, but, you know, you don't have to. It'd be great if you do want to. Uh, we'd love to see you there. Um, but otherwise, thanks for listening on that front. And um, now I think it's time to move on to our second game. Um, this one's one that I forced everyone to play over yeah. the Christmas period. Yep. Because I wanted us to all have at least a little discussion on it, uh, and um, I'm going to go on a tidy bit of a tangent first, and just take you all back to a time before, well, before I was born, um, in 1975, where um, one Steven Spielberg, uh, off the success of his um, movie Duel, was given uh, the um, director's chair to helm a thriller based on a book. Um, now. Uh, it's a very famous film. It, it created, along with Star Wars, the summer blockbuster genre. And some of you already should be aware of what this is. It is, of course, Jaws, which is a, uh, a thriller, creature feature, comedy, drama, horror movie, um, which about a small holiday island um, called Amity Island being menaced by an abnormally large great white shark. Uh, the film itself um, takes place in two acts. The first half is on uh, Amity Island. And basically, uh, this is one of those films that, for me at least, it it's aged really well. Now, it's obviously very dated looking, but the societal message, especially in the first half, just feels very relevant. We've got an island where there's a shark attack and people are being killed. And the chief of police is like, we've got to close the beaches. We've got to close the beaches. And the politician, the mayor is like, no, no, it's bad for us. It's bad for tourism. The shark is a hook, obviously. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's it's quite sort of interesting how that this whole all plays out. You get a lot of drama, a lot of scenes with um, the family. So you get to know these three characters, and then they go out to sea to try and deal with the shark once for all. And the movie just sort of changes context. And instead of being island-based, all of a sudden it's just three men. It's out on a on on a boat on the orca alone at sea, trying to to do their best to figure out how to deal with the shark bonding and so on. It's a uh, it, for, for me, at least, um, I first saw this film 
in the in the cinema um my local cinema in cardiff back when i lived in the uk every once in a while they go back and show um old classic movies so they show gremlins die hard uh the thing um and jaws was one of those that i went to see and i saw one of the original film recordings they put up in one of the older screens so from the original sort of reels showed it with a whole load of people who most of them i think had seen it before many times and i watched it for the first time and i was like oh my goodness this is i'm glad i saw this in the cinema because that was a heck of an experience it was like people were silent quiet throughout almost the whole thing um burst into applause at the end and you know wow i I don't know what it would have been like if i'd seen it first on the small screen on like a little television or something but it left quite an impression on me it's been around for quite a while. It launched Steven Spielberg's career and made him everything he is. Um, John Williams was one of the first films he scored with uh, Steven Spielberg, and his um, his musical score is it, it really does a lot to um, sell the movie. It's an iconic theme. So yeah, the um, game itself follows the plot of the movie fairly closely but mixes up the events so i'm going to talk about the first half of the game briefly and then we'll have a discussion about it and then we'll talk about the second half so the first half is a hidden movement game with one versus three Um, this is much like scotland yard or garibaldi or fury of dracula um, or spectre ops or nuns on the run games like that Um, There's a whole bunch of them. I very much enjoy these, although it can be exceedingly stressful playing the hidden movement side. So one side plays a shark, the other side plays the crew. This means the game's for technically for uh, for two to four players. You could play more if people wanted to play as a committee, um, but I don't know what that would be like. However, I've played this with two, I've played this with three, I've played this with four, and it just holds up on all, all scales. It's most interesting at two player and four player, but three can be very exciting. So on a turn, first thing that happens is uh, everyone sets up and the um, you draw from the Amityville deck and this tells you a random event that happens and where the swimmers turn out on the various beaches on this very small tight board. Um, there's a north, south, east and west beach and a certain number appear at each. Then the shark gets to have their go. They've got three actions. They do it all secret. So they um, they can move for an action or they can eat a swim for an action and they've got four powers that they can play uh, that will um, allow them to break the rules a little bit. Basically though, they have to do everything hidden and record their final location on a sheet, note how many swims have been eaten, then take them off the board. That After that, it's time for the crew to have their go. All three of them can play in any order, but they have to do their entire turn in one go. And the asymmetry continues because each of the three crew characters have a different set of abilities. Brody, Captain Brody, is stuck on the island. He's the police chief. He doesn't get in boats, so or at least not at this stage. So all he can do, uh, the same as anyone, he can rescue swimmers at a beach. So if he goes to a beach where there's swimmers, for one action, he can say, oh, you get off the beach. There's a shark up there. You'll be ridiculous. And if they give him trouble, he'll point his gun at them and tell them to get out there. I think that's how police works, isn't it? Um, then we have, uh, uh, he has the ability to buy, to pick up barrels from the shop and take them to docks and drop them off. The barrels are important for Quint, and we'll get to him last. Uh, he can also, if he's on a beach, use his binoculars, one action, once a turn. He can have a look at the sea 
uh, of the beach there, so the water next to the beach there, if the shark is present, the shark has to say, hey, I'm there, and pop its cool little wooden sharky token on the board, and hey, you spotted the shark. And last of all, if there's no swimmers on a beach, he can close the beach. He puts a token on that says beach closed. It's just like the one in the film. Um, and that stops the next spawning of swimmers, and it'll flip over to the beach opening soon, and then they'll come back on. So Brody can basically close an area of the board off to make it easier for everyone to figure out where the shark is because there's no food in one area. Then we have Hooper. Hooper is the oceanographer. Uh, he rides around in a cool speedboat. He gets to move two spaces a turn, but he can only be in the water. Hooper uh, is allowed to pick up barrels in the water and from docks, but can't drop them into the water. Hooper has to give them to Quint. Hooper's other ability is a fish finder. Um, basically, you can play it once a turn, put it in the spaces in. If the shark player, if Bruce the shark is in that space, he has to reveal, or they have to reveal. It might be Sheila. Sometimes it's, I mean, actually, um, just as an aside, According to the film, um, the size of the great white shark in the film, it would likely be a female shark, um, even though it's abnormally big, but the female great whites are larger than the males. So you have to find another name than Bruce. Sheila. She, Sheila's the, uh, the the name that Greg dubbed uh, his shark when he played as, as the shark player. <laughs> that is a good uh, shark It name. is, yeah. It, it, it was it was quite entertaining to, to be horribly mauled by Sheila, I can tell you. Um, <laughs> Then, uh, sorry, so where was he? Oh, yes, um, his fish finder. So Hooper throws his fish finder in the water. The shark then uh, has to reveal if they are in that space. Again, the same as the binoculars. But also, they do if they're not in that space, but they're adjacent, they have to say, I'm in the area, I'm adjacent. And that gives more indicators. Not exactly where the shark is, but narrows it down to like three or four different squares that the shark could be in. Finally, we have Quint. Now, Quint is the, the wind mechanism for the crew. Quint has a boat as well, can only ride around in the sea. Quint can pick up barrels um, and fire them into either the space that Quint is in or an adjacent space. If they land on the space the shark is in, they're taken off the board and attached to the shark. Two barrels on the shark, and that's the end of the phase. The other way that the phase ends is if the shark eats nine swimmers. The barrels have another use. If they're in the water, floating around, and the shark moves through the space, these sharks have mo these barrels have motion detectors on them, and the shark has to say, I have been in this space where the barrel is, usually, in my case, by shaking it a little and going boop, 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 or something other, you know, fun sound effect, because what's the point of being the shark if you're not going to make some fun sound effects? Um, so that that's that's essentially the first half. It will end if the shark eats nine swimmers. It'll end if the shark gets two barrels. I found initially for new players, often the shark tends to hit nine swimmers because people are not used to the map, but the map is so close and tight that when you get experienced, it becomes very easy to get two barrels on the shark within about five, six swimmers, depending on the cards. So um, we had two different experiences with or three different experiences with playing this on the numbers. Yeah. I believe, Alessio, you guys actually, um, the, the crew managed the job, didn't they? Yeah, I actually managed to get the shark just eight, five swimmers. This is the face I like most, mostly because in the Act 2, uh, won't spoil, but the shark won. <laughs> that aside, what happened is that the shark played very, very cleverly. So uh, I basically outsmarted the shark, which is uh, a nice thing to do about myself. The shark can actually swindle you and it can do it easily. And you have the means to understand that 
but uh, the way you reconstruct the movements from the start is the way you can win. So th that's uh, a really, a really nice and and uh, well thought uh, duel of minds here. So yeah, that's how it went. I do apologize. It seems there's a shark outside our house as our dog is uh, barking at it. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. Hey, it's all right. Yeah. Anyway, I have to say that uh, I found Brody completely useless, and it was not entirely <laughs> its his fault. But the the first time he managed to close a beach, I drew the event Fourth of July, open all beaches and put swimmers over there. Yeah, I'd I'd agree. In the first half, Brody does have kind of the um, very like grunt work job. Um, but the binoculars and, and the beach closure can be quite good. Um, I typically, if I'm going to play crew with new people, I'll play Brody though, because he um, it's more fun being out at sea firing the barrels and using the fish finder, I find. <laughs> In our own game, it was like herding cats. Uh, the swimmers were just going to every beach, uh, filling them with tons of people. It was impossible to properly uh, close everything, even though they were already eight people that had been eaten by the, the Great White, they were still happy to go into the beaches. I'm sure that says nothing about society currently during this pandemic. You you want that bad. <laughs> the game which uh, I, I taught David and Audrey, I, I played as um, as the shark. And the very first thing that happened is that Michael Brody decided to go out for a swim for his birthday. Uh, and then, and then f several other swimmers turned up in the same spot. So I just swam over there and scored like five points in a yeah, single exactly. turn <laughs> just by feeding frenzy in them all and that kind of set the tone the first half was very difficult for them after that because i made so much progress but they did get a barrel on me nice also, crimson waters also i have to say like i played brody and damn that was like cruel <laughs> he he stuck his legs in the water he swang swung them around he even put like turkey basting on them how what am i supposed to do if a, if a kid does that he's saying eat me please yeah it was just so obvious and we didn't we we were too too far to be able to do anything at that point yeah i i took a barrel for doing it but i figured it was a good trade to get halfway up my track for you guys getting halfway up your track um, I did have to spend a few powers to move on, though. So, uh, right. Now we'll talk about the second half, which takes place on the Orca. Um, so the how you do in the first half determines what bonuses you get for the second half. So the, the better the shark does, the more shark cards it has, the better that the crew do, the more crew cards they have. I think I like about this is it turns out that these cards are, they're not, powerful as such as they give you more options so even in games i've played where the shark has had the full suite of cards and gone in with 10 cards a ton of powers it hasn't made it too much of a difference it's been close and they've still um the, the crew has still succeeded in fact the game i played against uh, david and audrey uh came down to there were three three bites left on the boat and uh, i died and I'd even eaten Audrey at that point as Hooper, you know. It was really close. Either side could have won within two, three turns. That was a big nom 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 time. Nom 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 nom, yes. Yeah, you, you were beating the heck out of me with that hammer, though. That... Yeah. So, um, right, let's just describe it. You, uh, you flip your board over, and on the back side shows um, a picture of the orca sunk. Not, you know, not to... 
make you feel too pessimistic about the situation, but it's just that's the default state. You then lay tiles on top that are double-sided, and they either show the orca fully intact or the section damaged. Uh, they indicate the water and the boat. Then the crew set up on there, and I like the flow of the second half. It feels a bit like a, a miniatures battle game in some ways with a little bit of deduction. But uh, I'll walk through each phase. So first thing that happens is you draw three cards and they tell you the potential areas the shark's going to surface in, A, B, and C. And they tell you how much evade, which is like armor points the shark will have. If it's able to shake off any um, attachments that the crew have stuck to it, they're like, they work like debuffs, dealing damage or causing problems for the shark. So the shark may be encouraged to go to a place with a shake off symbol. And finally, they show how much damage uh, the shark potentially could deal with how many dice it gets to roll, one, two, or three. Then the shark has to pick one of those three and place a token to say, that's where I'm going, face down, uh, and also potentially play a power card to do something extra after. And then the crew now decide and, and talk. Um, and that's kind of the fun deducing part of this is you're trying to work out where's the most beneficial portion for the shark to go to, where should each of us be, what should we do? And each of the crew have different weapons. That Some of them have ranged weapons that can be fired once or maybe more if they have ammo, but all of them have a different melee weapon. I, I like how all three of the melee weapons work and cover different situations. Once they've decided, they will stand somewhere and they'll attack. And the, the scary thing about attacking is if you're attacking with a melee weapon you can only attack adjacent water which means typically you've got to be standing on the boat piece that the shark is attacking at least early on and if the shark destroys that boat piece you're falling in the water and it's going to get a free bite on one of you so you have this extra kind of ooh, do i do i go there oh i'm a bit injured and gradually as the boat gets damaged the outline changes and more spaces become available for you to target then after the after you, all that happens you get to attack first then the shark attacks and then if you're in the water the shark gets to attack again gets to attack again um it's a very simple flow like a lot of this game and i think that is fantastic in respect to this game is how it's not rules heavy the character sheets tell you everything you can do the cards are quite clear and as i said i like how all three characters have a different basic weapon that functions differently under certain circumstances um, brody has a baseball bat it rolls two dice but if you miss you get to roll again in contrast hooper has a hammer ignores evade so whatever whatever hooper rolls on the dice is how much hooper deals so hooper's fantastic at going to a location where the shark would be really evasive and just being like i, I don't care i've got a hammer mate here you go boom um, and Quint probably has the scariest of the three in that he has a machete that always deals one uh, hit and then gets another couple. But in co in compensation, um, Quint doesn't start with a gun. So I like this second half. I've yet to have a second half where it's been a stomp one side or the other. It's always felt kind of close and, and tense. And oddly, for a game like this, every dice roll I'm kind of excited about. It's, it's never just rote rolling dice. It always feels like each dice roll matters and is doing something significant. So how about how do you guys feel about this? I, I know, Alessio, you said uh, that you preferred the first half more. Uh, yeah, basically that, that happened because the shark won this time. And oh. uh, one thing uh, I think it's worth mentioning is that when you uh, have to declare, when you attack, 
uh, you have to declare the target of the attack before the shark reemerges. And uh, in this case, I completely sucked at deciding where the shark would be. So I lost by orca destruction. It managed, he pulled the, basically the good powers to like uh, do twice an attack to the bot and uh, he managed to cut the bot in half and after that mm. it was downhill. Yeah, when we played, um, I, I can't remember when I played with Alexis um, too, too much, I know it got really close. We did take Greg down in the end, didn't we, Alexis? Yeah, uh, I think that in the end the shark won but not by much i think that's what uh how it ended um no yeah. no i i i i can't remember because it's a while ago but i thought i th thought i managed to kill him with the hammer but maybe not i played a few games with greg so it's hard to remember i do remember with audrey and, and david i i lost um and i only just lost as well which was pretty exciting yeah it was pretty close even though our flair we attached to you was like shark friendly and environment friendly Mm. And, <laughs> but, it, and, it, we had, and we had to use uh, Hooper as a as chum pretty much, but otherwise it was like pretty yeah. balanced. <laughs> yeah. Fanny, Paul... you lost to an experience at the sailor anyway. Mm. Even though I got eaten in the second phase, uh, I preferred the second phase to the first one because uh, to me, the idea of having the three resurface cards and you know that the shark is going to resurface at one of these was a bit more instinctive to understand where the shark was going to go than uh, there are swimmers and the shark was there the previous time, etc. Because uh, when there are the swimmers, you are also depending on where you were before. While for the second phase, the shark can appear anywhere from anywhere. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, it, it does narrow the options down a bit more. Um, and there's a, a little bit of chance. I got a bit um, done in during the later stages because the cards kept popping up and they'd be like, this card's definitely on the boat and these two are over where there's no boat left. So we know where Fen's going to be. Yeah, it becomes easier as the boat gets damaged. Yeah, it does. I like that as well, though. It kind of you know, initially you're like, oh, God, God, it's the three locations. We better spread out our attacks. And then it sort of tightens down. And as things get to the very much the why, you're sort of very concentrated, but also you're more vulnerable to being knocked in the water and getting bitten at that stage. So it's a, having a swim around with that shark is not a good idea. I really like that both um, aspects of the game are different types of um, uh, hidden decisions. Even though they're both really different, uh, one is more about bluff, while the other is, um, I guess, tactical analysis. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I really like that because both uh, sides use the same sort of gameplay mechanics, the whole game feels very coherent, mm. uh, coherent yep. despite being uh, really different from one phase to the other. Yeah, so this game is, I'm just looking now at the site, this game's from um, Prospero Hall, is the um, a collaborative Seattle-based design group. Uh, it was published by Ravensburger. Um, it's a very cheap game as well. It's not expensive. It looks great, and it has a fairly small footprint physically. So um, I, I think that I am incredibly impressed with this game. Um, and I, I do think more people should be having a look at it because, yeah, it takes these mechanics and they're, they're good mechanics. They're interesting, they're tense, and um, it creates effectively two mini games that you play that 
cover the story of the film, let you retell it in a new fashion. And when you get used to it, this game's pretty fast to run through. Like 60 minutes is easily, you can have it done in, depending on how much you want to chat about your decisions. And you can explain the, the rules in five minutes. You can, yeah. You, you really can. There's only a couple of times I, you have to refer back to the rule book just to be like absolutely certain about a, a couple of things. But it's, uh, I, I think it is, considering it came out in 2019, so long after the film, it's just a bit of a statement to the um, long-lasting impact that this, this film has had. And, uh, and, and I, I do think it's a masterpiece in that front of design. You know, it's just... I'm impressed with what they managed to do um, with this. Yeah, I have to do that. I enjoyed the game anyway, fully, both first and second act. And actually, I would have overlooked that if I weren't forced to play it. So actually, thank you, because it was a fun game. Yeah, well, I, I thought it got up fairly well because it, um, it, it did have like a Golden Geek best thematic nominee in the year it came out and it had a parent's choice recommended as well although you know yeah. uh, maybe you want to wait a while before you let your kids watch the film if you're going to do that because it did cause a lot of <laughs> a lot of fear and, and concerns about the um about sharks it's still sharks still have a bit of a bad reputation because of this movie yeah, despite uh, not killing uh, almost anybody. I think that, that last year they killed two people worldwide. Um, it's really not a dangerous uh, animal. No, it isn't. I think there's one place um, off the coast of Europe, I forget exactly where it is, where you're banned from swimming because there's an abnormal number of shark attacks due to the type of sharks there, but that's about it eh, for the most part. A great whites are terribly... Um, not likely to attack so anyway um jaws i think gets my full recommendation it's one of my favorite movie recreation games um and um, i do hope i can convince everyone here to try out some other hidden movement games in the future because uh they're, yeah, they're one of my, I, I love those kind of uh, mechanics um uh, and jaws jaws is interesting because the board is so tight as you see when we play some of the others they're played on a bigger board with more spaces that the hidden character could be in and uh, the deduction is quite interesting and how the reveal mechanics work to give you info are pretty pretty neat scotland yard is probably the purest of those we'll have a look at that if we ever can do an IRL uh, meetup we definitely should try to play captain sauna Yes, yes, Captain Sonar is one I forgot to talk about. I haven't had a chance to properly play that. Captain Sonar is a total mess. I love it. <laughs> it, it is an incredible mess. It's not playable through uh, online, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely not. It's a hot mess. That's what we like. Okay. A hot mess during the Cold War. Right, so let's um, let's move on from Jaws to uh, it's uh, Mokborg with uh, Alexis and David. So who's going to take the lead on this one? Tell us all about it. So Mokborg is a Swedish role-playing game in the OSR genre that was um, published on Kickstarter first uh, through a pretty uh, successful campaign. Uh, I'll quickly explain what uh, OSR means. It translates to uh, old school revival and it's a movement in role-playing games uh, that distinguish themselves from the modern role-playing game by going back to a softer, less rule-heavy type of tabletop games. It's mostly started after the fourth edition of D&D, as some players disliked the amount of stats, special skills, abilities, and game aspect that felt, that felt distracting from the role-playing side of the game. 
usually OSR games are going to be more lean with very quick character creation, not too many dice roll and a very straightforward challenge resolution. So you will just have a DC to, to beat rather than having to make uh, any complicated map or use your skill or traits, it's usually going to be pretty straightforward. Usually hyping up the, the first and second edition of uh, D&D. Two of the big names uh, are either uh, Old School Essentials, which was a Kickstarter kick collection of rules that feels very plug and play. Uh, so you have different book and you can uh, easily just add, oh, this, this book adds a priest class, this book adds uh, rules for fantasy, this book adds rules for modern. It kind of tries to be like GURPS, but a more easy and um, D&D inspired. The other one would be Lamentation of the Flame Princess, known for its violent and colorful adventures. It's, it has a bunch of different genre, but it very much feels like the, the second edition of D&D. OSR games usually have um, very interesting tables to general loot, random encounters, because those games are meant to be played with uh, almost no preparation. Uh, and Mokbok is an OSR game in the sense that its rule uh, set is extremely simple. Your character is made of, of four stats, uh, you have a, a pool of health, and you have some equipment. And if you want to play with the different classes, you might have one or two abilities, and that's it. Uh, after you decide that, you're thrown into the world, and you might upgrade your character, but probably won't. Uh, because the game's uh, setting is a very... Uh, we are going to say very harsh. A long time ago, uh, a basilisk uh, made a list of prophecies about the end of the world, and uh, one day the sun disappears and every prophecy that the basilisk made uh, starts to come true. Uh, and so there's always a time limit before the end of the world. And whenever you play a game of Mokbok, it's uh, with that clock on the background. Uh, usually uh, you want to, be, uh, to finish your game as the world just ends in flame. Uh, the different prophecies are all very fun. You have like a little table that looks like a, um, like Bible passages that predict of the different uh, calamities that will fall into the world. I can just pick my book and read one uh, randomly. Um, the tree shall wither, drivel and die. Another one. In the hearth of Sakarf, uh, dusk and fog shall breathe beneath the walking tree. So always uh, fun little things that happen into the world and start um, messing with the players. Um, what will mostly happen is that you are going to play a very short adventure that will be very um, dungeon crawling or uh, just violent little uh, scaffold as your character are probably not going to survive too long since it's already the end of the world. Um, but the most important aspect of Monkbok, it's probably the way it looks. Uh, the game manual is just a beautiful work of art with lots of very vibrant colors and some captivating use of space. Uh, some page being entirely taken by one image with a little bit of text uh, twisting and turning around the, art the artwork because the artwork and the look of the book is uh, very much at the center of it. Yeah. Um, some RPG books are a little bit dry, but this isn't it. Uh, it values style at all time, and it, this is why I love it. It's also a great game for short session uh, or one-shot evening. And that's my introduction. 
So for me personally, the, like the standout is, first of all, it's like uh, <clears throat> has like this death metal, doom metal look. It's all like totally over the edge, and but it's not taking itself very serious. It's like, yeah, it's like <laughs> just f- fun, fun RPG. Like everything is like completely, um, like yeah, over over the edge, as I said. Uh, it goes from like uh, the artwork, the design, like the physical book is like it's, it's like fantastic. It has like like imprints. It has like uh, special special like pages where you have like some kind of uh, like this reflective foil on it. There's also glow glow in the dark uh, letters on the outside of the book, so it just looks very fantastic in general. What personally, what I feel like there's a lot of dark humor involved. Like you have those tables, uh, like for looting corpses. You have tables for like uh, special things that your character might carry, and it just oozes like this dark humor in every corner. Yeah, uh, the book really oozes uh, style and um, and cool aspects. For example, here I'm just going to pick up the occult treasure table. Read one at random. Ash gray ring, a finger wide, uh, a finger width wide ring. All that passes through is obliterated. That's fun to find on a corpse. You find a ring, you try to put it on, and you lose your finger. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of fun little traps in the game. Yeah, it doesn't really care about balance at all because it's like meant as a sh- short-term game, but it's like also the fun part. Like <laughs> you will test. I think you will tell a lot of stories after playing it for a while. Yeah, um, it's definitely a game where you're going to play for a few short evenings that will be very uh, cool and colorful and fast. And by the end of it, you'll, your most interesting stories will be either how you completely uh, gold some monster or how your character got um, died in in terrible way or got maimed. Yeah, there are a lot of slight nods also to like classical games like Warhammer, like one of the random items you could get is like a small wishes dog. Then you have like this uh, kind of fumbles if you try to use powers, which is like similar to magic. And a lot of weird things can happen if something goes wrong. Yeah. Um, I I was wondering if um, any of you played some uh, OSR games or like uh, enjoyed this, the... the... The movement, the sort of uh, indie movement that's going counter to the most recent um, modern RPGs. Uh, like I was saying, I am actually old school myself, so I actually play the, the, <laughs> the original games. But yeah, I, I am actually pretty fond of the genre. Actually, I I'm not playing a lot of uh, role playing games anymore. But uh, what I, what I love to do is to take a manual, uh, read it, uh, and uh, read it for the rules and for the settings. So games which play in an evening and uh, allow you to explore, and uh, especially when it, when in a game it's fun to fail, that's actually an added value. So I am actually pretty fan of the concept of the movement. Well, I think that uh, Morgbok would be perfect for you because it's really a game where you can just pick it up. You don't really need to prepare anything. You can just throw uh, an adventure super easily. They actually, in uh, one of the um, 
uh, Kickstarter that they made, one of the things that they uh, gave out was like a pamphlet-sized uh, dungeon. It's like a, an A4 page that just... Um, that has been folded. And so you have just like a few sides that explain the dungeon, that give out the trap, the monsters, and you can show that to your player. And you'll have a fun evening where in the end they will either succeed or die, but it, everybody will have fun. Um, and because of the game, making a character is so fast and easy, you basically have to roll like three dice and then you're, you're done with it. You can really just have a character dying and then having another character join up the adventure and within a, a few minutes you're, you're back into, into the action. And it's just fun. Um, it's, a, it's a really fun little thing. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning that the the Kickstarter page for the original project is actually a good point to look at the goodness. Then you go to the official site of Morgborg and you see that there is even more because actually the project is uh, fully described and it's teased correctly on the Kickstarter, so you get interested. Then when you know what the system is capable of you just go to the official site of Morkborg and you actually are overwhelmed by the community response and the stuff that there is there yeah uh if anybody likes um uh heavy rock metal and that kind of stuff uh, on their kickstarter i think that they link towards their spotify playlist that is just full of uh, really juicy music that uh really fits within the the theme of the game yeah i was listening to that before recording that's a playlist. <laughs> yeah um what about you fan do you uh, do you enjoy usually uh, osr games i know that when you play uh, rpg games you usually focus on something that's more about the role playing and the um the fun aspect of it. Yeah, I'm. Um, well, we're. I'm a long campaign player, um, and I have very few systems I really enjoy playing. So one-off scenarios aren't normally the kind of thing I, I, I play at all. Um, I mean, my essentially my role-playing collection is Seventh C, both editions, uh, Woofrup, all four editions, um, and uh, Call of Cthulhu. Um, we're um, we're playing Call of Cthulhu right now, uh, and so much so that we've gone two sessions without rolling a single dice. Just to give you an idea of how um, how role play it is for the investigation like that. As a long time player of uh, Call of Cthulhu, I can say that Morgborg is very uh, different from it. Uh, although you don't roll that many dice in uh, in Morgborg, it's just um, but definitely more than Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, I, I grew up on um, Woofrup. Um, I got my hands back when uh, a bunch of like secondhand um, uh, first edition Woofrup books, um, the Enemy Within campaign and everything, and I've just been hooked on the investigative style of play. I'm very much somebody who doesn't... I think combat is not really what I'm looking for in the game, and so that's what I'm like when I run it. Yeah, um, in Call of Cthulhu, if you end up rolling dice, usually it means bad things. Yeah, Wolfrop <laughs> is um, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay for those who uh, aren't aware of the acronym. Wolfrop was originally pitched as can we take Call of Cthulhu and do it in the Warhammer world? So it's a bit more, um, bit more combat orientated and very lethal without your extra lives given to you in fate points. But yeah, that's as close as I get. Like um. Uh, with D&D &D and things like that, um, I'm very much, I just get switch off and just stop paying attention, which is terrible. Um, 
I, I had a look at the Guardian actually did an article on Walkborg, um, and really? they did, yeah, of all places, yeah, of all places, yeah, they did it in um, August and covered it and um, very much played up on the aspect of how it tributes to Swedish Swedish metal, um, Swedish death metal. Was it uh, one of the was one of the designers or something? I'm not sure. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the the original title of uh, Morgbog is also. Um... Uh, it's Swedish. I think it's something like Dark Tower or something mm. like that. Uh, so, so, something that sounds very old school. Uh, speaking of, one thing that is uh, nice to mention is that the um, the English edition and the uh, the layout of the the book in general has been made by uh, Patrick Stewart, uh, not that one. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sorry. I should have said yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do. I can actually translate this. My Swedish is there. Um, it, yeah, it's um, dark castle or dark fortress. There's a few ah. books around here, so yeah. Ah, there we go. So, uh, that international podcast finally uh, <laughs> paying off. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. So yeah, the, the layout has been made by uh, Patrick Stewart, which is uh, uh, a guy that is well known into the um, the indie uh, tabletop RPG scene. Uh, he makes some really cool um, books and interesting uh, tables, well, full of uh, really cool monsters. I've used a few of them uh, in uh, in some of my own uh, tabletop RPG. Uh, one of the monsters he created in the in the book. Um, fire on the velvet horizon is um a phoenix that only exists once and that transcends multiple uh, games that he, he encourages you to bring into like your uh, call of cthulhu game and then your um uh D games and that they all sort of relate together in some strange way uh th there's some really interesting concepts um yeah uh, well, yeah, just before we, we finish, I think that uh, today is actually a very special day for Monkbok, right, uh, Yeah, they're, they're actually going to start another Kickstarter. They had one before for Van Fanzine, which is like basically like a community gathered and then refined content. They did one, I think, in last October or something. And now they are doing something similar again. Uh, but this time it's it's the Kickstarter includes the uh, game master screen, and I think there will be like some kind of uh, maybe some kind of special content for it. Like I think it won't be exclusive for the Kickstarter because like you can um, order the fanzines and pretty much everything from their website. Uh, but it will be interesting. They are going to start uh, the Kickstarter is going to start tonight at I think seven o'clock or something. Yeah, seven p.m. Well, when you say tonight, you mean like uh, five days ago? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically, since you said today, it is important to say that the day of the recording is uh, 14th of January. Oh, yep. Sorry. Uh, yeah. You've, you've time dated us. You've stamped us. Yeah. <laughs> That's a recording no-no. It's not as if I could have cut it in uh, editing. <laughs> okay. So I'm really looking forward for that Kickstarter and it will be interesting. Yeah, me too. I'm uh, I'm excited. I think that the name of the Kickstarter is a Morkbook Cult Eretic, uh, which always very um, imagey, as we say in French. Yeah, I think there will be like they said there will be some like four kinds of dif uh, four different gods, which might take like uh, give you some kind of like new background. I think it feel like it feels Ooh, like that interesting. 
Okay. All right. Well, um, it sounds very interesting. Even though it's not my cup of tea, uh, I, I certainly, when I read about it and had a look at the reviews and everything, it seemed uh, pretty unique. And um, yeah, well, we will be back in two weeks with some more. So um, just to say, as before, you can catch us on um, Patreon at The Last Standee or on Twitter uh, at The Last Standee. And you can also catch us on our individual socials, as we'll say them as we go. So, um, first of all, thank you very much, everyone, for being here. Um, and uh, Alexis, where can everyone catch you? People can catch me on Twitter at Xeliasame and find my credential on our Patreon or our Discord. Yep, we do have a Discord now as well. Uh, Alessio, is there anywhere else special that people can catch you, apart from the uh, Patreon? Uh, yeah, it's techless uh, everywhere with a three instead of the he. All right, David. Um, you p- could you can catch me via Discord or via Reddit. Uh, yeah. the, the profile it's Captain Yar with three R's. R. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, that's pretty much the best way to contact me if you want. Yeah, the extra R is very important. Audrey. Yeah, you can find me as uh, Millennia underscore Minis on Instagram. Okay, uh, well, that's time for us to all say goodbye then. So uh, thank you very much for being here. And uh, Audrey? Bye, see you next time. David? Goodbye. Alessio? Bye. And Alexis? From Belgium, goodbye. And from myself, goodbye and have a very good uh, rest of January. Thank you.